0: BLOB
1: TALK RADIO Good morning everyone, this is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to my weekly From My Mama's Kitchen talk radio show, My guest for this morning is Paul O'Brien. He is a visionary entrepreneur, author, and philanthropic founder of the Deviation Foundation. Paul and I will be discussing about his latest book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, Cultivating Intuitive Intelligence. The book is a manifesto for achieving happiness and success using the author's visionary decision-making principles. Good morning, Paul. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning?
0: I'm doing fine, Johnny, and thank you for having me on.
1: Fantastic. It is wonderful to have you on the air with me. Great Decisions, Perfect Timing is an awesome book. It is so thorough and easy to read. The book makes perfect sense for anyone who is seeking knowledge on how to live effortlessly in life's rhythm. So congratulations, sir.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment.
0: Well, I grew up as the eldest of seven children uh, from uh, in the San Francisco area. And I had, as the eldest, I had uh, pretty exceptional levels of responsibility um, and self-sufficiency at an early age. I, was, uh, I took care of my younger brothers and sisters. And uh, I was brought up... Uh, with the core belief, um, which I've been trying to overcome ever since, that I needed to be perfect in order to be lovable. So I tried to be the perfect child, and um, and that was uh, uh, that involved uh, developing a, a very strong work ethic. And one of the things that I'm grateful for is uh, learning the lesson in my youth uh, that it's always a good idea to. Uh, Do your chores before you go out to play. Now, this is something that my parents enforced, particularly my mother, um, and I didn't like it so much at the time, but I'm grateful for it now. Uh, In fact, I, uh, as a parent, I I tried to imbue the same principle with my son, and I called it Grandma's Law. And Grandma's Law is, uh, yes, you can have some ice cream, After you finish your green beans. So uh, that was Grandma's Law, and I've actually benefited from that in my life. When I was in high school, my parents made me go to an all-boys Catholic high school, and my father took me aside, and both my parents were very strict. And my father took me aside, and he informed me that I was going to be financially responsible to pay the tuition. So I worked my way through high school, and... um, and I also got a 4.0 and uh, valedictorian and all kinds of scholarships out of high school. And then, but none of those scholarships included a financial award um, because my father made enough money according to the state of California. So therefore, I was also working my way through uh, university and actually the second sophomore year of university, and this is during this tumultuous time. I was at UC Berkeley. during all the riots mm-hmm. in the late 60s, and I um, I dropped out, and um, I went to, and my parents moved to the back to the Midwest, so I was basically emancipated at age 18, and I was working my way through college um, during the late 60s in San Francisco, which was a very culturally wild time, and it was during that time that I discovered uh, spirituality, as mm-hmm. opposed to the Catholic religion I had been brought up with, and I started uh, meditating and studying the principles of Eastern um, uh, metaphysics, Taoism and Buddhism, and, um, and also discovered some things that fascinated me uh, in my youth. Um, specifically, when I was 19, I discovered uh, the I Ching, which is an ancient Chinese book, one of the Taoist classics. And I also discovered software in the early 70s. And this is at a time when Apple Computer wasn't going to exist for another five years, and nobody knew (laughs) what software software was. But I I found it fascinating because uh, I had a friend who was a programmer at a a nonprofit computer center, and um, they had a a, a computer they called a mini-computer, which was actually a gigantic machine. It took up half this room with all kinds of air conditioning and gigantic mag tapes. And he figured out how, he got some software uh, for it from MIT um, through the very early internet. It was called ARPANET at that time. And he put it on this machine and there was a little, uh, 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 a monitor with the size of an oscilloscope. And somehow he found joysticks and he hooked them up. And so we used to go in there late at night, you know, like when I was, uh, mm-hmm. oh, 20, 22 years old, and we would play this game uh, on the computer, um, you know, half the night. And I was so taken by that. I was fascinated, not so much by the game. I've never been much of a gamer, but I was fascinated by the whole concept of it, the fact that somebody wrote this code that turned a machine into an interactive Immersive experience, and I mm-hmm. thought, "Wow, there's potential in this." Uh, <laughs> I used to have fantasies, multimedia software back in 1973, which was 20 years before CD-ROMs even existed. Mm-hmm. So those two fascinations, and so I, I did everything I could to get a job at that uh, software center, at that computer center, and um, my friend was trying to help me, but uh, I, I was a college dropout. You know what skills did I have? Well, the one skill I had was I could type, and I can mm-hmm. talk. So I could I could type, and they needed somebody to type up documentation. So my career in software started out as a secretary at that computer center, getting paid six hundred sixty dollars a month. And, and from there, I developed a career in software marketing. Um, that I um, and I went up the ranks, and I was I, w- I became the vice president. Of marketing and sales for a high-tech company, uh, until 1989, when I had this flash of insight related to the two things that had always fascinated me, which was the I Ching and multimedia software, and I developed, um, and I and I had the idea, geez, there might be an intersection between these two things, and our Mm -hmm. company was using Macintoshes in the late '80s, and the Macintosh was a graphical. Uh, computer Windows couldn't, didn't even really exist yet, and so mm-hmm. uh, the only graphical computer in offices was the Macintosh for desktop publishing. And I, I thought, wow, I wonder if there's a way I could do the I Ching on the computer, because uh, I was doing the I Ching more often than usual because I had a lot of, uh, a lot of questions that logic couldn't handle, and it had to do with office politics. So I got very inspired to hire a programmer and an artist and create what turned out to be one of the first multimedia titles um, for the Macintosh, called and I called it Synchronicity, and it was an interactive I Ching program, which was just purely a labor of love. And mm-hmm. that is how I launched my entrepreneurial career, to publish this most unlikely product. And everybody told me I was crazy. There was no... <laughs> There was no market for the I Ching in, uh, on software in 1989. And uh, people who knew what the I Ching was didn't buy software. They didn't even like computers. I mean, we didn't have mm-hmm. email. We didn't have the web or anything. And, uh, but I, and people would say, why are you doing this? You have a great career. You're making a lot of money. You're a vice president. I said, geez, you know, I don't. all I can say is wherever God drags me, I will follow. I was so compelled by this fascination I had with the idea of it that I became an entrepreneur. Now, I'm not necessarily recommending that to your audience, <laughs> because it led, it, it led to very difficult years trying to mm-hmm. keep it together. But uh, about 10 years later, I made a CD-ROM version of it because CD-ROMs had come into existence in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And then I added... Um, Uh, astrology and uh, then the internet came and I converted it all to the internet uh, on a kind of pay to play basis so people could order Mm -hmm. astrology reports or or do I Ching readings online or even tarot card readings and uh, it ended up in the early 2000s becoming the world's largest astrology website and we were running AOL horoscopes and the Google horoscope gadget and uh, and at that at that point, um, you know, I was finally making money. After thirteen years I was actually
1: making
0: <laughs> pretty good and we started to be pursued because we had massive traffic. And we mm-hmm. were doing mm-hmm. million page views a month and we had ten million registered members and it was incredible how fast it was growing. I started the whole thing in my basement. So we started to be pursued by large media companies. Disney came up to see us because they had all of these women's websites, and they wanted the astrology stuff, and Barnes and & Noble was pursuing us, and I thought, no, 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 and I, I would just say, no, no, it's okay, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm living my dream, I'm, 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 we're, I'm, we're doing okay, thank you very much, but then I started to think, well, you know, what would I do if I got my number, if I got enough money to not have to work for the rest of my life, and I could live off of investments, what would I do with myself, and I was in my 50s, so I said, um, I thought to myself, well, um, I I would start a nonprofit, and mm-hmm. I have all these books, to write and I have some traveling I want to do, and I have this radio show of my own that you mentioned earlier, and I could mm-hmm. syndicate more widely. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have plenty to do. So I started to entertain offers and ended up uh, selling the company in 2007 for millions of dollars and. Never had an exit strategy, never was intending to sell it, never thought that I Ching software was ever going to amount to anything financially. I just wanted to make mm-hmm. a living I just wanted to make a living doing something that I cared about. And um, that was my goal. I called that creative freedom. And now I have like the ultimate creative freedom because I don't have to make a living. I mean I have investments mm-hmm. but you, you get the point. So that's kind of a summary of my life since you asked.
1: (laughs) That's fascinating. And I wanted to get you to tell us about that because I read that about you. And this is that typical concept of following your dream or living in the moment. Because from what I gather, situation presents itself and you are able to see clearly the opportunity. And most importantly, you were doing this like a hobby. You enjoy it. Of course, you're thinking about obviously having to support yourself financially, but at the same time, it was fun. I think that big key word is you having fun at every turn that you were involved with, with the software concept, as well as the pursuit of understanding I wouldn't say not necessarily mystical side of the equation of spirituality, but in the idea of the nature of love, the meaning of life, so to speak, and how we're all interconnected in so many ways in terms of, for lack of a better term here, molecules. We're all made of the same thing in different combinations, so to speak.
0: Right, right. I think, uh, you know, in my case, um, what I can only sort of guess at, at, at this, but what made it work was the fact that I was leveraging things that had naturally fascinated me uh, in mm-hmm. my youth. I wasn't, mm-hmm. I, wasn't just, I wasn't just simply looking for something interesting to do or looking for something to invent or, or I wasn't scouring the pages of Inc. Magazine looking for entrepreneurial franchise opportunities. I was uh basically uh motivated I learned I had already developed some skills I had mm-hmm. been doing software marketing for fifteen years and I was pretty good at it and I learned mm-hmm. my core competency was direct marketing so mm-hmm. I had paid a lot of dues and i um and basically uh, it, um, that skill uh direct marketing um, was what really Um, made a huge difference in terms of the ultimate success because when um, email and websites came along, I mean, that was a direct marketer's wet dream. I mean, that was... Right. And I knew exactly what to do. So I was in the right place at the right time with the right skill set. Now, my decision-making was ultimately proven to be good, but my timing Mm -hmm. was that good. You know, I was 10 years... (laughs) my time, and, yeah. um, you know, so, people say to me, oh, man, your timing was perfect, you sold the company in 2007, I say, "Right, yeah, that's, that was pretty good timing, but, you know, the 13 years leading up to that didn't feel so good, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I wrote a book, I wrote this book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, to sort of tell my story, but also to help other people uh, discover what fascinates them, and, You know, how to um, be in touch with their intuition because it really was my intuition that was telling me if I did something that I really was fascinated by, it was going to be okay. I was going to make a living. All I really wanted, that's all I really, that was my goal, was to make a living doing something I care about. It was a very modest goal. And um, I just want to encourage other people to make good decisions for their own sake, decisions that might be led by intuition, like Mm -hmm. mine was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a that's a real art, doing learning how to do that.
1: The book is fascinating. It's a very interesting read, and what I like about it is that it's simple to understand, number one, and number two, there are things that you talk in the book. Simply, it resonates, I think, with just about anybody. One of the things right off the bat when you talk about the three levels of decision-making we make every day. Tell us a little bit more about that, please.
0: Well... You know, decision making, uh, Johnny, is the most critical skill uh, when it comes to success and happiness in life, and I don't think we pay enough attention to it. And in, in, in evidence of that is the fact that we will pay CEOs enormous sums of money, or politicians give them enormous power in order to do this function for the collective good. Um, so, decision making. In our own, we are each the CEO of our own life. And I don't think people understand that. People say, Oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I say, Hey, I would like you to think of yourself as an entrepreneur right now. I don't care whether you're selling your time to a, a large corporation or not. You're still, the, you're still in charge of your mm-hmm. own care. And that's the choice that you're making. And it might be a really good choice. Like I said, I did that for 15 years. And I learned a lot of skills and I got supported. It was, it was my day job. And it was uh, a very instrumental in my uh, ultimate success. But So, I want to encourage people to make better decisions because that is the executive function. That's the mm-hmm. primary function of a leader. And, and I, want, I want to encourage people to be leaders in their own lives in terms of the decisions that they make. So, we make thousands of decisions every day. And, mm-hmm. and the three, I divide it up into three categories, like you said um, there's mundane decision making, like Okay, what kind of toothpaste am am I going to buy out of the choices I have? Or should I go right or should I go left today? Which route should I take? These kind of decisions are are not what this book is about. We make 1,000 decisions a day. We make more decisions now um, and more important decisions uh, in a year than our grandparents made in 20 years. It's amazing how Mm -hmm. many choices we have. And the downside is we have too many choices. It makes decision-making that much harder. But anyway... Setting aside the mundane decision-making, then you have strategic and tactical. Now, tactical decisions are basically what is the specific next best move that I can make uh, in in moving towards my strategic vision. Strategic decisions are those big ones that basically determine the direction that your life might take or some uh, major uh, uh, pivot that... Or or change in your life, like changing careers, or or getting married, or having children, or you know, probably the first Mm -hmm. uh, major uh, strategic decision that an individual, that a lot of individuals have to make, is where am I going to go to college? Until then, you don't really make a lot of strategic decisions. So my book really starts with um, the student stage, uh, you know, when a person is uh, becomes an adult, a young adult, and then. The second stage is, um, is, is the builder-provider stage, and that's when you're in your 30s and 40s and, and 50s. And then the third stage, uh, which I'm into now, is the patron or mentor stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in uh, stage one, um, that's when your primary uh, strategic decision is, what do I want to try next? And I, I basically encourage people to try things, to job hop, to date did not make, you know, lifetime commitments. Um, So getting back to your question, uh, decision-making, particularly strategic Mm decision-making, is the most critical skill for success and happiness, and we are not trained on how to do this. So I basically wrote this book. I would love it if Donald Trump would read this book, but um, (laughs) I, I really wrote it for everybody. Uh, because everybody's in the situation of being the CEO of their own life. I would say decision-making is the most critical skill, and um, that's what I hope people get out of the book is um, some support for improving at that.
1: The book, to me, laid out a beautiful foundation from making you understand you talk about the mundane decisions that we make, things that we don't think about what to wear when we get up, how we're going to look like, or this and that and so forth. And then all the way to decisions that we make that will impact our lives for the next three to five years, 10, 15, 20 years. Decisions that we make that would impact someone else's life that somehow we never even thought about. So as such, making great decisions during a perfect timing scenario is critical What I enjoy about the concept that you provide is that sometimes there are times when we are trying to make certain decisions, and it's very difficult because it's not quite the right timing. And you talk about in terms of the 13 years of somehow huffing and puffing, and you finally made it in some ways. But at the same time, during that process, you had this fabulous time in terms of like okay, I experiment, it doesn't work, and then you were collecting data for yourself and realizing that how certain things impact you. For like a better term, you went to push the start button or something, and or not to push the button at all. So that brings me to your concept of visionary decision-making system. Can you share that with us, please?
0: Well, the whole book is about visionary decision-making, which is Mm -hmm. my term for – my term for these big decisions that people um, make in their lives at various different uh, junctures. And um, the visionary uh, decision-making approach uh, starts with uh, self-knowledge and becoming familiar with um, what fascinates you, like I said before, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but also becoming familiar with what kind of beliefs do you have right now. I mean, people are amazingly ignorant about their own beliefs. There's so mm-hmm. many things that we there's so many things that we believe subconsciously that we're not even aware of that really have an impact on our life. In fact, in the book, I've got one chapter called "Belief Engineering," which is about that. And so, mm-hmm. like for instance, I I said earlier, I was brought I I I adopted a core belief that I needed to be perfect in order to be lovable. Well, nobody actually told me that. That was yeah. the conclusion my two-year-old or three-year-old mind came to based on its interpretation of the way I was being parented. And uh, it wasn't something that anybody actually told me or that anybody would actually defend, but that was the conclusion I came to. If I do everything exactly right, then maybe I'll earn a few crumbs of love. Well, I didn't even really uh, uh, become consciously aware that I believed that until I was 30 years old but it really helped me it really helped me grow up it really helped me um, uh, realize oh my god you know, there's, this, there's these beliefs inside of me that I'm not even aware of that are actually limiting me and getting in my way so the whole visionary decision making uh, possibility starts with self knowledge and becoming aware of what not only what fascinates you but what's holding you back in terms of beliefs that, you're, that you don't even know you have mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. um, it all starts with that and so then you know at some point you develop an awareness of something that inspires you that's based on what, fa- what has fascinated you in your youth and that um, is not in, in, where you're not going to let yourself be held back by uh, limiting beliefs but in mm-hmm. the meantime everybody's got a day job everybody's got to pay the rent or most people do and um, and, and d- in that process you can learn some skills you know I think there's a there's such an emphasis these days and everybody wants to be in a leadership position but I don't think uh, everybody is ready to be in a mm-hmm. leadership position so they learn how to until they learn how to... Um, lead themselves. And part of that is the educational process of developing skills. And when you're developing skills, you're not a leader, you're a follower. And so if you're, Mm -hmm. if you're never, if you're never a good follower, if you're just always a reluctant follower and you sort of drag your feet when it comes to developing skills for the sake of an organization or for the sake of your family or whatever, uh, you're never going to be a good leader. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think we should have some courses on how to be a good follower. I, I, I've met so many people who say, "I'm tired of being a follower," and then I just say, "Well, have you been a good follower?" Mm-hmm. Now, in my mm-hmm. case, in my case, I was, um, I was always, you know, um, a, a follower until um, you know my late 30s because I wanted to. do – I was fascinated by. I needed. I had a career. I wanted to make uh, good money. And so I developed this whole skill uh, in software marketing, not so much because I loved it, but because I needed a day job and I wanted to um, do it as, as well as I could. And I also wanted to develop the skill. So I actually put some work into it. I took night classes uh, in marketing. I educated myself about the technologies. I tried to stay up, up to speed. Um, and I managed to um to get jobs in the high-tech arena uh, during a time when there really wasn't much educational opportunity to learn that. So there's a lot of ways to learn things, but I think I would encourage people to develop skills and not put a lot of pressure on themselves to come up with the perfect uh, livelihood that's you know, the culmination of all their dreams and just jump directly to that before they're ready, before they have enough self-knowledge, before they have developed skills. So skill development and self-knowledge, it's all part of stage one of life, you know, the student stage, which lasts until you're 30 at least, and sometimes a lot longer than that. Um, And so at that point, you know, basically, if your limiting core beliefs don't get in the way, at Mm -hmm. at some point you're liable to be inspired. And that inspiration can be uh, stimulated by life events or something that you read or just an aha moment that appears. In my case, I was, uh, uh, like I said, the VP of marketing for a high-tech company. And this high-tech company, which is a small company, it was like 40 employees, um, was so dysfunctional, uh, the CEO made Steve Jobs look like a nice guy to work for. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> And it was horrible and um Mm -hmm. it was a scapegoat it was a scapegoat culture and as a result of uh, uh, as a result of being immersed in that I found myself actually taking my copy of the I Ching which is a gigantic Mm -hmm. book to work and I was actually consulting um the I Ching at work in order to just sort of maintain some inner balance and Mm -hmm. um it was a strange thing to do because I'd never done that. I had been using the I Ching my entire adult life since mm-hmm. I was 19, only when I needed it. I wasn't using mm-hmm. it, you know, very often. I would only use it when I had a problem that logic can't handle. And there's a lot of problems that logic can't handle. <laughs> Office politics is one of them, but there's relationships, there's negotiations, there's uh, timing questions. These are all things that, that logic can uh, Logic can't handle everything. You know, if logic can handle a problem, if a logical solution is all you need, fantastic. Logic's a great skill. I've got a whole chapter uh, on a logic technique in my book mm-hmm. that's very simple people can do, and it's a lot better than pros and cons. There's a lot of limitations to the pros and cons method of analyzing possible choices. So I have a, a, a chapter on, on a technique that is, is way better than that in the, in the book. But um, I was in the situation where I was using the I Ching at work, and and I and the work in, in, on my desk was a Macintosh, which is a graphical computer. This was 1989, mm-hmm. and I thought, and one day, a light bulb went off, and I thought, geez, I sure wish I could just consult the I Ching on my computer instead of having to go in some private room <laughs> or some closet where none of these engineers are going to bust me. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's how I got the inspiration. It was just, Mm -hmm. you never know. You never know how inspiration is going to come, but you need to be open to it. Um, And in that case, that inspiration triggered my two fascinations, or two of my fascinations from youth, the I Ching itself, and um, the potential of multimedia software, which hardly existed at that time, but I could see it coming. So I was inspired almost by necessity. So I would Mm -hmm. encourage people to... Increase their self-knowledge, develop some and, and develop some skills at the same time, and just stay awake to what really moves them, and mm-hmm. um, and, and not try to force it. I, I think there's all of these uh, efforts to to be successful, to be a leader, that are um, that are in many cases premature because the people don't know themselves. Um, and they they haven't developed the skills, you know. Like when I took this incredible risk, I left mm-hmm. a high paying executive position uh, in order to become a, an entrepreneur, publishing and marketing uh, my I Ching software, which also I had to write. I didn't write the code, but I wrote the I Ching itself. So I'm a Western mm-hmm. author of this ancient Chinese book, which, by the way, is being translated into Chinese now. This is just fantastic!
1: Congratulations. Awesome.
0: Congratulations. <laughs> But um I uh you know, I left a secure, high paying position in a growing industry in order to do this crazy thing I loved. Mm-hmm. But I had a safety net, Johnny. My safety mm-hmm. net was was those skills I had developed. I right. had reasonable I had faith that if if I failed, if this was a dumb business idea, which in many ways it was that I could go back, I could get a job, is uh, in software marketing fairly mm-hmm. readily, and mm-hmm. I mean, so I had these skills to fall back on, that made it easier for me to take this hundred ten percent risk, yeah, which, um, which, which I did, and there were so many times in the next thirteen years, where, I was teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. The company mm-hmm. actually went bankrupt in '93 uh, under the influence of some managers that I had hired because mm-hmm. we had started to do more mainstream stuff. The I ching market wasn't big enough, so I started doing time right. management. But anyway, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I would encourage people to develop their self-knowledge, to which includes discovering what their beliefs are, and then become adults about their belief system and choose beliefs that are going to serve their um, confidence in their own abilities to take risks. Mm-hmm.
1: That's terrific. One of the things you brought up at the very beginning of the conversation was about leadership and being a follower. I speak about leadership and I've been in positions of leadership and so forth, as, so as you as an entrepreneur, obviously. I think we both concur the fact that to be an effective leader, you've got to learn how to follow. And right. are you following with anticipation to learn or are you just following, putting in the time? And that's where, right. that's the difference. If you are following in anticipation to learn, that's when you acquire skills. Right. I just want to bring that up because I think that's very, very important. And all leaders, very effective leaders are excellent followers at one time in their life
0: right exactly you know um, following being a good follower is not doing the least amount of work for the most amount of reward precisely being a good follower is developing skills and and contributing to the greater good whether it's the profits of the company or um, the mission of the company or just the greater good of society I mean, in Buddhism, they have a concept called right livelihood. Mm-hmm. And right, right livelihood is a um, largely misunderstood concept. A lot of people think that it must mean doing, uh, you know, finding a career or a livelihood that is going to um, fulfill you, make you happy, etc. But mm-hmm. no, what it really means is, um, making a living, doing something that doesn't harm anyone, so in the concept of right livelihood, that would prohibit um, you know selling weapons or mm-hmm. encouraging mm-hmm. you know being in the arms industry um, yeah. or or any livelihood where uh, it brings harm to anyone but as long as it doesn't bring harm to anyone it's it's perfectly fine and every like I said before everyone Needs a day job, so um, that's 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 a really important part of life. And and I say everyone always has a day job. I have Mm -hmm. a day job. You you would think with the creative freedom I have, where I don't have budgets, I don't have (laughs) deadlines, I don't have to report to anybody, I can decide to do whatever I want to do. And um, I mean, I run a nonprofit, and and that's a day job, but that's a completely voluntary day job. It doesn't pay me Mm -hmm. anything. Looking uh, to it for that uh, The Divination Foundation Basically uh, it, it syndicates my radio show Into a podcast Called Pathways And it, um, and it publishes my books mm-hmm. And we have a blog And other educational uh, materials And we have an app We have an I Ching app Called the Visionary I Ching um, for smartphones. So this is what my divination foundation does. It doesn't pay me anything. All the proceeds from the books and the app, et cetera, just go back into doing good works um, mm-hmm. uh, through this non- through this uh, nonprofit. But my real day job is uh, I have investments, and once a month, I meet maybe twice a month, I meet with my uh, virtual CFO, which is the firm that manages uh, my assets and mm-hmm. you know that recommends investments to me and i make this and i what do i do i make decisions so my day mm-hmm. job is to make decisions and sign off on investments uh once a month okay but i still and i have to pay taxes so i still have a day job <laughs> yes <laughs> yes even though you know i'm basically retired or semi retired but everybody mm-hmm. has a day job you know, Britney Spears, you know, you think well you yes. can get to this level of artistry or this level of fame and then you can just excel at your art and you don't have to do anything else. But that's ridiculous. She's got managers that she has to manage. She's right. got an organization that she's responsible for. She's got to make executive decisions. That's her day job. And I don't that's think correct. she probably loves it. But it's something, everybody's got to have a day job no matter what there's a day job part of life and it's important, but it doesn't have to be perfect. I don't enjoy paying taxes any more than anybody. I don't enjoy um, making stressful decisions any more than anybody. It's just my responsibility as the CEO of my own life. It's the day job component of what I do. Now I have more creative freedom than most people, but that's Mm -hmm. something that I've over time by taking risks and, um, and uh, but everybody's got some creative freedom. Nobody's working, you know, hundred hours a right. week. Right. Right. You know? so finding that balance relative to your to your lot in life, um, that's uh, that's kind of the secret, and not being, and not ha- and having a positive attitude about your day job. Like for instance, my mm-hmm. day job is to make investment decisions. Okay, so I actually put some effort into studying that field and mm-hmm. learning how to have an intelligent conversation with my um, with my uh, financial manager so that I can make better decisions. So I do some mm-hmm. homework, too. That's part of my day job, too. And that's what I'm talking about with skill development. Whatever we're doing, we can become good at it or we can drag our feet and say, I'm going to do the least amount of work and I'm going to let my <laughs> financial manager make decisions for me and then I'm going to blame him if anything goes wrong.
1: We have to be an engaging participant in anything that we do we can't outsource certain things in life we have to be a master of our own life and that comes back to the concept again of great decisions perfect timing and what fuels that basically is the ability to cultivate intuitive intelligence what is intuitive intelligence
0: well it's basically uh, learning how to access your intuition you know, there's a there are a lot of forms of intelligence. Uh, there's, you know, the rational intelligence, the intellect. There's uh, emotional intelligence. There's social intelligence. There's and intuitive intelligence is basically learning how to uh, tap into what has been called um, the sixth sense um, for a thousand years. And basically you think of the five senses, I like to use the analogy, if you look at the palm of your hand and and, and spread your fingers out, the palm of your hand is your mind. And these five fingers are the five senses and they're like huge antennae that are pulling in information or that are receiving information. The visual sense is the biggest one. And then the auditory, the kinesthetic, etc. But imagine there's this dinky little six finger which is the intuition the sixth sense and it's also capable of receiving information but it's a very fine signal it's like you've got a remember the old ham radios back in the day 50 years ago and when we were kids you know people we would try to find some signal from singapore somewhere some really (laughs) faint and it was completely Mm -hmm. occluded by static well that's kind of the way you know, and you had to dial it very carefully. It was a very uh, uh, fine, uh, subtle signal surrounded by noise. Well, the noise are these five senses, and sometimes we have to we have to learn. And the and, and the skill of tapping into intuitive intelligence is learning how to quiet the five senses, like meditation, and give the sixth, give that little antenna a chance, give us ourselves a chance to. Perceive the signals that are coming in, because they're coming in all the time, but we can't hear them because the the system is so drowned out by noise. And then another factor uh, is our emotions, you know, our strong feelings, uh, and our emotional biases, um, fear and greed and things like that, especially fear. It's sort of like there's this little cement containment dome on top of, Uh, that sixth sense. So not only do you have all this noise to compete with, you've got these obstacles in terms of uh, the strong feelings uh, that get in the way of intuitive reception. And what is intuition? Well, you know, this is an open question. You know, a lot of books have been written on it. Um, I uh, I, I like to think of it as a higher form of pattern recognition. In other words, we can perceive the connections between things, even though we can't see all the dots. We can connect the dots, even though they're spread out very widely sometimes, because we're looking at the really big picture. So intuition is the sense that can perceive the really big picture, but it perceives it with only relative clarity, uh, and mm-hmm. it comes to us. It comes to us in the form of of of. Uh, we could have a vision. Some people hear things, but most often it's uh, in the form of a feeling, and we call that a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. But this, mm-hmm. brings up, this, this brings up an obstacle. I already said that uh, one obstacle is are strong feelings, like uh, the strongest feelings are fear or anger or, or jealousy or something like that. Um, and strong feelings are not, intuition never comes in the form of a strong feeling. And in the book I talk about what I call O'Brien's law. Mm-hmm. The stronger the feeling, the stronger the feeling, the less you can trust it as a basis for a good decision. And this really gets people, you know, they they because most people think, well, the stronger the feeling, the more I should go with it. Right. And um I'm saying exactly the opposite. If it's a strong feeling, it's not a trustworthy basis for a decision. It might be uh, a good point of information. It might offer you some insight into what's going on for you. It might have some psychological benefit for you to understand it and to take it into account, but it's almost never a good basis for a decision. Intuition comes in the form of a very quiet uh, and subtle feeling if it's coming in the form of a feeling. Um, and so learning to tell the difference is a, is a, is a aspect of uh, what I call intuitive intelligence.
1: What's interesting is that, that strong feelings you're talking about, that's emotionally driven versus the rationale side of the equation. And so I get what you're talking about in terms of intuitive intelligence is a little bit different. It's almost like there is a process of disengagement, detachment, and you're able to kind of just see it as it is with very little emotional ups or down when you're looking at that versus emotional expressions that you feel are riding on this, tidal wave and you say to stay away from that
0: well you know strong feelings come from the ego Mm -hmm. they come from the separate sense of self that we have that can easily feel threatened or that can easily feel competitive and intuition is not a function of the ego intuition is a function of the heart and it's looking at things from a wider point of view And one of the tests that you can use to uh, differentiate between the two is, um, is this desire that I'm having, is it good for everybody? Mm -hmm. Or is is it just good for me? Is it good for me and not good for somebody else? Does there have to be a winner and a loser? Is it a win-lose thing? If it's a win-lose thing, if it's dependent upon you getting an advantage over somebody else or somebody else not getting something, if it's coming from this kind of zero-sum thinking, then it's ego-driven and it's not from the intuition. If, on the other hand, you ask the question, is this thing that I want for me also good for the collective? Is it also going to be good for everybody else? Then... It could very possibly be an intuitive insight and something that you can give yourself the green light on. Mm-hmm. I always try to mm-hmm. use it. Whenever I want something very badly, I ask, is there any harm that could come to anybody else from me getting this thing Or yeah. Because my belief, and this gets back to belief engineering, my belief right. that I choose, And beliefs are a choice. Beliefs are a decision. Often they're not. Often it's a decision we made when we were three years old. But my Mm -hmm. choice is to believe that whatever is good for me, whatever is truly good for me, is good for everybody. And if it's Mm -hmm. not good for everybody, it's not truly good for me because we're all interconnected. So that's a a criterion that I use to tell the difference between an intuitive insight and an ego-driven feeling.
1: Is that how logic works with intuition?
0: Well, logic should support intuition when it comes to visionary decisions. Logic's important. It can provide a filter. You know, basically logic can help us decide, oh, that's definitely not a good idea. Yeah, logic can uh, use the uh, criteria, is it good for everybody? That's a logical question. And so that's a good way for logic to filter out choices right off the bat that you don't even have to think about and sort of through the process of elimination uh, narrow things down to the two or three options that you have that might be good for you and might be good for everybody. So logic is is an important part of the visionary decision-making system, and logic can help with the first question of the decision-making process. There's two questions. That you have to answer to make a strategic decision. The first one is the "what" question, and the "what" question is, "What is the best next move I could make?" So imagine you're playing chess, or you're playing Go, or some game, some strategy game like that. You can think a few moves ahead, and maybe you've got more than one good move uh, that you could possibly make. And so you you answer the question, "What's the Best next move That's the what question Then there's the, In that one Logic can really help a lot the what, Then you have the when question And when should I make it How soon should I make it That's the timing question Well the timing question Is almost entirely intuitive There's no way you can analyze that If people could analyze the timing question And come up with great answers People would be making a killing on the stock market, all <laughs> <laughs> so That's intuition. True. Intuition mm-hmm. is really what has to drive those kind of questions because timing is a decision too, and it's a intuitive decision. So you have mm-hmm. uh, so logic helps with the what question, but it doesn't help very much with the when question. Very you know, true. Speaking of question and speaking of intuitive uh, mm-hmm. issues. You know, when we have an intuitive insight, considering all the obstacles, considering all the noise, considering that we're bombarded with information on all fronts, and then considering that there's all of these emotional factors that are uh, also driving us, and, and mm-hmm. you know, there's this, there's this thing called confirmation bias, which states that we believe what we want to believe, and we're more inclined to believe what our ego wants us to believe, Um, So we're going to only look at evidence that confirms what we already want to believe. So most people, or a lot of people, are not very open-minded. They just, you know, believe what they want to believe. And in the face of these kind of obstacles, all the noise and all of the biases and all of the emotional uh, obstacles, it's practically a miracle, to have an intuitive insight these days, mm-hmm. and it really takes it really takes a lot of work. That's why the whole second part of the book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, is about how to get how to let go of the obstacles in order to access intuitive intelligence. It's not easy, but everybody's got intuitive intelligence, mm-hmm. and everybody and everybody can improve their access to it. You know, the irony is that. Intuition is hardest to access when you need it the most because when you need it the most, you're usually pretty emotional, you're worried about something or you're afraid of something or you're, you know, have this craving for something and it sort of takes over. That's when, you need, that's when you're most likely to make a bad decision and set yourself back. That's when you need to access your intuition And most people don't know how to do that. So that was the main reason I wrote the book.
1: You wrote something very interesting in the book on page 122. It's about manifesting, creative manifestation treatment. You walk people through the concept of these are some things that you have to tell yourself in order to create something within yourself. I love step one because you have to recognize and acknowledge the creative power that one has, and then as you identify with the creative power, you have to declare it, obviously. Step four, being thankful. Step five, being able to release and not to worry and interfere. Step six is being an emotional magnetization. I'm letting myself feel the presence as you declared. And then step seven is action steps. I think the biggest challenge in everyone is the action steps. What are your thoughts about that?
0: Well, it's interesting that you point that out because this manifestation meditation that I developed with the seven steps is an extension of the law of attraction, which Mm -hmm. was popularized by the secret. And by Mm -hmm. the way, for anybody who wants it, you can access this creative manifestation template um, on the divination.com website under the resources section. And I put it there in a way that people can download it as a text file and then customize it for themselves relative to whatever it is they're trying to attract uh, to themselves or whatever it is that they want. Well, and that's a very useful tool. I'm glad you brought that up. And it's available for free. It's in the book, but it's also uh, on the website in a form that you can download. The, seven, the first five steps were actually developed in the 1930s by Ernest Holmes, who was the founder of Religious Science, which is a form of Christianity, a new thought Christianity. And he called it scientific prayer. And basically it's acknowledging creative power, starts out acknowledging creative power. It's very similar in the sense to the 12-step program where we acknowledge a higher power and we Mm -hmm. realize that we're not all powerful, that we need the help of a higher power. But the manifestation process he accesses, it, it acknowledges and recognizes that higher power and then it aligns yourself with that higher power. So in other words, the higher power or God or creative power, whatever you want to call it, is there for us all the time. It's a creative resource. I write about this in the book. Carl Jung called it the collective unconscious. What I'm saying is If you want to be successful as an entrepreneur or at any enterprise, you really need a high level of resourcefulness. Now, this resourcefulness, of course, you could have financial resources. That helps. A lot of times people squander that. But even more important than financial resources is your own creativity, um, your own sense of timing, and your skills. This... um, Creative resource that's out there for all of us, you can think of it as something that's in the cloud. Like we have smartphones and computers, and you know, they store things in the cloud, and then we can go to the cloud and we can download things when we need them. You can think of, of this creative power as being out there, for, as being there for us all the time. I used to say when I was a bootstrap entrepreneur, I used to say, people would say, Do you have a backer. Now, I never had investors... Mm-hmm. And, and I thought of this creative power as my backer. So I would say, oh, yeah, I have a backer, and my backer has infinite resources. And that's what I was referring to. So mm-hmm. we recognize this creative power. We identify with it in step two, and then we declare our good as if it exists right now. So there's, that creates a certain magnetism. And then we feel it. That's the emotional magnetization step. And there's this whole meditation. Like if you print this thing out from divination.com, you'll be able to just read it to yourself every morning. And you fill in the gaps and you customize it. And then the letting go step is basically the, the, the faith uh, step where you realize, I can't make this happen. I'm going to let go, and I can't even uh, dictate the exact form it's going to take. And I'm open to it unfolding in my life. And then step six is where the rubber meets the road, and I I invented step six and step seven. Step six is the decision-making step or the what question, and step seven is the when question, and that's executing the decision by taking action. These are the two steps that were left out of the secret and that Mm -hmm. generally are not emphasized, and I think you're right. I think they're very, very important. And I'm really glad that you brought that up.
1: It connects to me so drastically from that standpoint of view in going through the process. And that's why I was saying, like, this book is really fascinating for people that really want to improve themselves and accomplish what they want to do. Where can someone go to buy your book, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings?
0: Well, divination.com is our website of the Divination Foundation. That's D-I-V-I nation.com. Everything that I do and we do is represented there, and that's kind of the heart of of the nonprofit. Uh, The book Great Decisions, Perfect Timing is available on Amazon and other online booksellers. We don't really have it in very many stores, and the... I Ching app, which is called Visionary I Ching Oracle Cards, is for sale in the Apple Store and in the uh, Google Store um, for people who, and it's a free download. Although in order to get the full functionality, you have to uh, you have to buy it. So those are pretty good. Uh, and then in the radio show, my radio show Pathways is podcast on iTunes and other podcast servers, and it's also. Available on divination.com. The last 200 interviews I've done have uh, are there. So these are basically ways for people to follow up if they want.
1: Fantastic. Before we close, can you share with us your experience in meeting the Dalai Lama?
0: Oh, that's a funny story. I met the Dalai Lama twice, and when he was in, the last time was when he was in Portland, and he stayed in the hotel that I live on top of. I have a condo on top of a hotel here in Portland, Oregon. And he stayed in this hotel, and partly because I'm here, because I know the Tibetan Lama that um, is local here and has a school here. And so then they asked me if I would donate my kitchen of my large condo to the Dalai Lama's cook and his helpers, and I said, "Oh, I would be honored to, because the Dalai Lama's on a very special diet, and, and and there's all this, you know, there's a certain amount of concern that the Chinese might want to poison him. So I offered that, but I didn't realize what I was getting into because at 3:30 in the morning, the monks would come in here and start playing around. <laughs> and so I had the privilege of, you know, being of meeting the Dalai Lama because of that, and having my picture taken with him, and. He's such an inspiring figure. Um, it's amazing how cheerful the Tibetan people are considering their refugee status and considering the mm-hmm. cultural genocide that has been uh, perpetrated on them.
1: That's a wonderful, beautiful story. By the way, before you leave, since our show is about people, family, and living life, what would you like to share as a recipe for living with our listeners this morning?
0: Well, one of my favorite mottos has to do with risk-taking. And risk-taking is a way that we grow. Now, if you have skills to fall back on, that's a very good thing. But my, I guess the best advice I could give your listeners would be take the risks that grow you. I knew when I took the risk I took that it was going to grow me because it was in an area of natural interest for me and I was going to learn so much. Even if it didn't pan out to be financially successful, I knew I was going to grow from the experience and that I was going to learn a lot about myself and about my life. So I would close by advising listeners to take the risks that grow you as opposed to risks that are going to feed your ego
1: Fantastic. Paul, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. It has been a true pleasure, sir. Thank you again and have a blessed day.
0: It's been a pleasure for me, too, Johnny. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Okay,
0: you too. Bye.
1: Bye bye. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, May 23rd. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor in chief for Chicken Soup for the Soul. Amy and I will be discussing Chicken Soup's latest release, Chicken Soup for the Soul Military Families. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Bye-bye.